Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the unofficial Unreal Engine podcast, where we talk about all things Unreal Engine and also salted, dried, peanut butter, squid. We're your hosts. My name is Alex Coulomb. <laughs> and I'm Jacob Feldman. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. Make sure you like, rate, subscribe, share, I don't know, do something. <laughs> Destroy <Anything>. it. <laughs> <laughs> this is your mission if you choose to accept it. Well, man, has it been a few weeks, you know, a few busy weeks here. What are we talking about today? I, I think, Jacob, one thing we might want to say up top here is um, for anyone who cares about what some in the ether might term a podcast season, I think we're going to call this the first episode of uh, season two. Is that right? I think so. So this is a whole new generation. Of <laughs> Everything's different now. You know, we're not unofficial anymore. No, no, I'm no. <laughs> I take that back. I take that back. <laughs> careful, careful now. We are still the unofficial Unreal Engine podcast, but... It's version two now. And I, what does that mean, Alex? I don't know. I, you say version two, <laughs> I say version 0. 0.02, like yeah, still yeah, yeah. coming up on version one. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think it means that we've been doing this for about a year and it's been quite a ride. It's certainly the longest uh, podcast pursuit I've ever had. I uh, had two kind of, I, I wouldn't say failed attempts at this before, but like, you know, we had a good idea and then we just couldn't find the time or bandwidth to keep it going. So uh, I, I would just like to say I'm proud of us for for continuing to chug along here. Yeah, and if anyone would like to keep a count of how many episodes we've gone from focusing or we've gone <laughs> <laughs> while not having an episode completely de dedicated to Unreal Engine, like let us know. Someone has to be keeping a, a tracker somewhere. It was like it's been eight episodes since you only talked about Unreal Engine. Maybe that's version two. I don't know. We're Maybe. still open to feedback, guys. <laughs> yeah, we're figuring it out. Uh, so I think to to kick off season two, um, I did a lot of talking in our, our two-part finale about Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. I would like you to talk a lot this episode, Jacob. Uh, you got to go to a fun little event that we were both at last year. Um, this year, it was just you. So what was the name of the event you were at, Jacob? Oh, man, it was good old SIGGRAPH. And it's not just any SIGGRAPH. It's the 50th anniversary SIGGRAPH this year. Uh, which was very exciting, uh, and I'm I'm excited to kind of get into. It. I, I don't know how how you want to start this, Alex, but uh, I'm happy to to dive in however you like. Well, I think I think we got some breathing room in today's episode, so why don't we set the stage a little bit for anyone who's never been to SIGGRAPH, maybe doesn't even really know what SIGGRAPH is. How about yeah. you introduce us to the very concept, Jacob? Sure, sure. So there is an an overarching academic consortium called ACM. Uh, do you know what it stands for? Nope. I'm gonna. Google it <laughs> I'm gonna find right out right now. <laughs> now. Uh, man, we're we're both gonna see who gets it first. Uh, Association of Computing Machineries there Special Interest Group on Computer Graphics and Interactive Techniques. That's ACM SIGGRAPH. Yep. So ACM is this overarching organization. SIGGRAPH is the as. Alex said, the special interest group on computer graphics, I guess. And interactive techniques. And interactive <laughs> techniques. Um, and essentially, it's a big conference dedicated to nerds interested in graphics, VFX, games, really anything GPU related, pretty much, though not strictly speaking. Um, CPU features need not apply. Yeah, I mean, it, well, we'll get into it. You know, <laughs> I, I had 
a very interesting run-in with quantum computing uh, ah. this graph, which i'm i'm very uh intrigued to to get into um but i hope i hope it was just like the tv show devs for anyone who's seen that <laughs> um i so overall it's an academic conference which means people can submit academic papers and posters and research and stuff like that um and there's there's a lot of that that goes on um and then equally it's you know an industry event um where there's a usually a pretty big presence uh, particularly from vfx and games and um around their use cases uh, of course there's i would call aec and visualization an equal party or maybe not equal but it has a significant presence as well um but it it's it's usually a, a conference for technical folks um who are part of the community um and then there's also like a a, a very uh they usually have a um like a show floor where vendors and stuff like that can can kind of have a pre presence the company i'm part of had had a you know a booth there and so i spent a good amount of time i'm going to preface this episode saying i apologize i'm going to miss a lot of stuff about sigraph and uh <laughs> just because i spent a lot of time you know running in and out of meetings or talking to people on the show floor and it was really great to talk to so many cool people um but it didn't mean i didn't get to as many talks as i really would have liked uh, which is it's typical but uh unfortunate yeah it, it's impossible to do it all like these conferences there are uh people you want to see there's parties to go to there's you know talks there's demos uh it's a, a constant sense of fomo for people who didn't go at all like me but even for people like yourself who are there and can't possibly be in five places at once <laughs> yeah exactly I, I mean the thing is like so when when you sign up for the conference the the online access there's a ton of material that comes with it and it used to be, I don't know if they still do this, but they shipped a USB drive. I have an old one here. Um, it was a USB drive. I'm trying to see if I can pull it out real quick. And they uh, put on this every bit of content from the conference, like all the papers, all the presentations. So I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to show this. Uh, 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 well, <laughs> kind of word for it. It says yeah. SIGGRAPH on it. I believe and, you. Yeah, so, so this was 128 gigabytes of SIGGRAPH content, um, which is quite a lot. So there's uh, usually a lot of stuff that goes on, and it's just impossible to get all to all of it. But there's they usually are good about documenting it. So if there's anything you didn't get to see, you can usually find it. Now, there's a whole host of events. So like um, I was part of a few events that are deemed birds of a feather, which are uh, just like round table conversations, stuff like that. Those typically are, are not recorded and are really just about having open conversations where <laughs> you don't have to sign a ton of NDAs. Um, but uh, overall, a lot of content is there. Yes, I, and that now is as good as time as any to say there's a lot of people who messaged me uh, during SIGGRAPH asking me where I was because I did exist on the schedule because I was supposed to be co-hosting a Birds of a Feather session for live VR theater. Um, I was sent a, rec a recording of it. It looks like it went splendidly, fantastically. Wish I could have been there, but uh, unfortunately, I did not get my ducks in a row to get out there to the West Coast. But the Birds of a Feather seemed great. Like, I'm really glad those sessions happen. Yeah. What I will say, and I, I guess this is kind of maybe getting a little off track, is that so this year's conference happened in L.A. 
Yeah. Um, and it, I believe it happens in LA every other year or something like that. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was that frequent. I thought it was like, like the Olympics, some, like a big yeah, tour. Yeah, some like regular <laughs> interval to happening in LA because obviously like Hollywood and a lot of industries are there. Um, and it's usually the best attendance. I, so I think there were like 20 something thousand people, Ooh, which is a big yeah. conference. Um, so it's, I, I know they hold in LA pretty frequently, but let me tell you, downtown LA is just not where I like hanging out. No, no, no I agree. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like LA. You know, there's <laughs> a lot to do and do there. There's tons of culture, ton, but none of it is in downtown LA. Yeah. So like word of advice for people who, who are looking to vacation in, in LA, you know, just don't stay in downtown. Just like yeah. go anywhere else. <laughs> Literally anywhere else. Yeah. Like it's really not, not very pleasant. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was fine for me because like I spent the majority of the day inside of the conference center and so did most people. Yeah. But um, outside of that, yeah, not too great. Yeah, well, the uh, the next stage conference that we talked about briefly on the on the show, uh, I was in LA for that, and the official hotel for the conference was the Ace Hotel, which was a little expensive. So my teammates and I, we were like, well, let's see if we can find an Airbnb by the hotel, and we found a very reasonably priced one that looked beautiful. And indeed, yeah. once you got inside, it was. But the outside of the building looked completely condemned. Like we were joking, like the instructions should have said, like look for a building that looks completely. <laughs> unoccupied like it's about to be demolished and that'll be the place where the airbnb is that's where you'll sleep tonight yes yeah. exactly that's, that's great yeah well it's a side note but definitely uh was not my preference next year we'll be in denver oh cool i love colorado yeah and i i'm personally much more excited for that yeah than, than la um but overall like i said spent a lot of time in the conference center so can't really complain yeah. Okay. Let's dive right in. Uh, no need to go in any kind of major chronological order, unless yeah. there was some big like opening keynote thing that was amazing. But like, what what do you want to chat about? So okay, uh, I missed most of the content. Most of the right. Keynote, right? Um, <laughs> except for heard, one. <laughs> yeah. For, except for the Nvidia <laughs> keynote, right? Um, but I heard from other folks. I I was asking folks who would come to the booth. What do you think of the keynote stuff like that? Most people were pretty like lukewarm. They were talking about kind of the stuff you'd expect. There was a, um, this is not the talk I went to, but there was a keynote on IBM's quantum computing, which I thought was pretty, uh, which I heard was pretty interesting and, and pretty compelling. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't hear a whole lot about the other ones and I was at the NVIDIA uh, keynote, but um the the big highlights that I heard from people are um, one, and this is something that would interest you, is that they had the Verifocal uh, uh, yeah. prototype. Uh, Meta had the Verifocal prototype of their headset there, um, and you're going to be very disappointed in me, Alex, but I actually didn't get a chance to try it. But I heard <laughs> a lot of secondhand reports from people who were saying, "Yeah, like you could read." all the way up to like a piece of paper or like an iPad at like three feet away. And like, yeah. um, you could like hear the actual movement of the lenses and like, it seemed impossibly expensive and stuff like that. Um, but people were saying it was, it was really pretty amazing. Um, so like for what it's worth, there was this demo 
as part of like the future technologies section and people were saying it, it was very very good um it, for those of you who maybe want a little background on on what this means is that like there's this traditional problem with vr headsets and alex jump in when i tell this wrong <laughs> called the near field distance problem something like that something like that yes yeah and and essentially it it means that your eyes are designed or or trained you know from childhood to adjust its focus based on the perceived depth of items so like when you look at something far away your eyes know how to adjust to focus on that um the problem with vr is that if items appear far away well, the screen is right in front of you and you're not controlling the focus of the content. So like the game engine has complete control over how it wants to place things in focus. Most of the time, everything is in focus. Like very few games use any depth of field or if they do, it's usually pretty terrible. Yeah. Um, and you wouldn't usually use that in VR, right? Am I am I getting this right, Alex? Yeah, and now that we have um, foveated rendering, um, you can pair that with eye tracking and you can get some sense of focusing, but then it's tricky because the game is then gonna be making certain assumptions because um, foveated rendering is, is technically different, but you could use a similar kind of thing for eye tracking to be like, oh, well, I think the player is looking at this thing that's, you know, 100 feet away. Let's put that in focus. But if you get it wrong, ooh, that's really going to make people feel like they're about to have a stroke or something. So it's, yeah, it's, it's and, very tricky. Yeah. And fundamentally, from like an optics perspective, there is like a, a physical difference between focusing like just something that looks blurry correct and something that is out of focus it yeah. has to do with the angle that light rays are coming in right so from a, a a display going through you know lenses in a vr headset they're all coming in straight yeah right, right. so yeah you can make it blurry but that doesn't necessarily mean your eyes are actually doing anything to focus so there's like a bunch of issues with how your like phys physiology physiology <laughs> that's a word physiology um uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to get some nasty looks from my fiance who's in med school <laughs> um there's a there's a clear difference between that and what's being rendered and displayed to which usually well there have been thoughts about it could cause you know damage to your eyes and that's why there's like all this hesitation around younger kids using it mm -hmm. uh, it can cause damage to your eyes and overall just introduces a lot of strain yeah. uh, so the idea with verifocal is that you actually like you take physical lenses to change the actual angle and direction that light is being like is being passed through to your mm -hmm. eyes to emulate the experience of physically focusing your your eyesight on on different objects so it takes like the foveated rendering idea and then moves actual physical lenses to, to accomplish that yeah um, and it's been very they i remember back at the last oculus connect the in-person one they were talking about this. They had they showed us a demo of some contraption. Was this the half dome prototype? Uh, maybe, yeah. I can't remember if that's what it was called. Hmm. Uh, what is half dome? Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah, this that that's correct. So there was a prototype there that they showed, which was accomplishing this to some extent. But they had a, a working prototype at. SIGGRAPH, I heard lots of reports that was very cool. So that that seemed like a highlight. Maybe it wasn't a highlight for me because I didn't actually get to see it, but a lot of people were talking about it. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, 
there was a whole display on the evolution of the Utah teapot, which seemed exciting. Um, <laughs> the Utah teapot. I didn't know it was called the Utah teapot. And give a little background on why anyone should care about yeah. a teapot and computer graphics. So the Utah teapot is kind of one of the first reference 3D objects um, of all time. Um, so it was part, and I, I didn't know this off the top of my head, or I didn't remember this off the top of my head. I just Googled this. I'm not going to give myself credit. <laughs> um, it was created by Martin Newell, PhD mm -hmm. student, University of Utah. Um, and Utah, I do know that the Utah like graphics department was one of the very early computer graphics uh, departments. Um, and so the Utah teapot, and, and in this day and age, you did not have, you know, like, uh, you didn't have modeling software. So right. these were manually programmed vertices, and it was the first object. So the Utah teapot has all these curves, mm -hmm. and it was designed to display the ideas of tangent space, where you're able to render or shade objects to appear around, even though they contain very rough vertices. So there's a lot of kind of it's been a almost running joke um, or, you know, reference object inside of rendering. Like if you look online at like anyone, who, any graphics nerd who's trying to show off their latest rendering technique, it's going to be either Utah Teapot, the dragon. I don't remember the name of it. Um or it, it might be a, a selection of, of other random objects like a Mobius strip or like all these other kind of funky objects that are meant to display um, like you know, different rendering complexities or techniques. Um, so definitely um, it was seemed pretty interesting because it was the 50th year of SIGGRAPH. They had kind of this evolution, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, like I'm well here. Any question, like any, anything you want me to talk about, Alex? I like uh, rambling, but I mean, I guess so. Okay, here's the thing. Let me give you my perspective from the outside. Yeah. I was watching social media pretty closely uh, during SIGGRAPH because I kept expecting, especially for the 50th anniversary, that there were going to be some like major announcements from someone, maybe Epic, maybe NVIDIA, maybe, you know, computer graphic scientists at Stanford or something. Um, maybe there's a new Cornell box. Cornell box is this, yeah, this yeah, that's the other red one. green thing where you put all the objects to render, uh, the Mobius strip and all that. Uh, and I, I didn't see a lot on social media of anyone being like, holy cow, I just had my mind blown by yeah, yeah Paul DeBevick or whatever, someone announcing something crazy. Um, so I, I guess what I'd love to hear is anything that you think should you know blow people's socks off or uh, or that they should just be aware of that got announced yeah, or shown I, or demoed yeah so I, I would say some of the bigger announcements uh were what uh unity kind mm -hmm. of officially unveiled you know this they had made a purchase of weta's like pipelining and tool division years ago they, <laughs> yeah and they officially launched um unity weta tools oh. i felt like they could have been much more creative with with the name <laughs> record like i feel like they could have done a lot with that and they really kind of dropped the ball um <laughs> no offense to friends and and and, and family at, at unity also However, the, the website just says contact us like you can't even download it ah <laughs> yeah so like <laughs> i just felt like they could have done a little better than weta tools um, yeah. But fundamentally, um, they kind of announced that and they were showing a few things. So 
one of the big ones was um, Ziva. Um, yeah, Ziva Dynamics. Around. Yeah, so Ziva Dynamics, which is their like AI animation. Um, uh, you just pass. It's like their meta. Yeah, it's like their metahuman stuff. It's like their metahuman, but they they have like uh, it's now very AI integrated, so that you can like have a conversation with them and stuff like that. Um, like what else is part of that tool set? Still a little unclear to me. I think it seems like they're trying to make some announcement and more is to come um but certainly seems pretty cool um, so that that was definitely one of the the big announcements you saw a lot of people walking around with weather tools shirts and stuff like that um what other big announcements <laughs> were there, there sorry were... I, I, real quick on that i'm, I'm laughing a little bit because i'm reading about this showcase of um Avatar The Way of Water and, you know, Weta, of course, being a major company that uh, works on this. And, like, I'm trying to find any proof that, like, Unity itself was used in a big way in Avatar The Way of Water. Because uh, Yeah, but, like, I, they can still, Weta can still keep using Unreal. And, again, my understanding is Unreal was a big part of their pipeline before they were acquired by Unity. And I'd be surprised if there was, like, a message from on high from John Riccatello, who's, like, no more Unreal. But this article that I'm reading is a little bit, like, it's not coming right out and saying, like, you know, Unity was the primary tool for Previs or anything like that. Um, but, you know, they can keep just referring to Weta, a company owned by Unity, did a bunch of Previs. Anyway, right. go on. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of gray area there. Um, I'm sure in the future they'll they'll use Unity uh, in more places. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a reason why they, they made the division so that Weta proper, that does all the film production, can do whatever they want. Right. Um, and what a tools as owned by unity is adopt or like pulling in the technology that what has developed and then presumably adapting it to unity, whether some of those tools get forked and continue to use unreal in another path. I mean, that seems realistic to me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there, there was a few things there. Um, did you hear any big Unreal announcements? Like I knew some folks who were giving presentations on behalf of Unreal. Uh, some of the folks I knew said it, it was kind of like a dry run for some stuff that they were going to be also showing at Unreal Fest. But did you feel like there was anything stand out from Epic Games? I, I had not heard anything big. I mean, they announced that they were launching the stage app right before SIGGRAPH started. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know, the stage app is like a V2 of the, what was it called before? Uh, uh, I don't know. I actually didn't know there was a previous version of it. There was a, like a very bad, um, like uh, visualization on your iPad tool. I can't remember what it was called. That would let you connect to an Unreal Engine instance and it would allow you to do some, like you can move your iPad around and view the scene and stuff like that. Oh, well, that's the VCAM app. So that tends to get used more for like, yeah, like an actual virtual camera. I think the Stage app is is for doing other stuff. Well, so it has the same capabilities. Oh, okay, gotcha, And it's gotcha. using pixel streaming. Mm. Um, and so the original Stage app did not use pixel streaming. It was using its own proprietary protocol. It pretty much sucked. There was no <laughs> for them to do it. Um, that was replaced with, um, with pixel streaming. The Stage app is that plus... Essentially, the um, like pixel streaming camera or like multi cam pixel streaming, 
um, so that like many people can be all looking at the same scene and um, and like have different controls. You can like assign controls to different people. Um, so it looked pretty cool. I haven't gotten to play with it yet. Um, but uh, other than that, I did not hear. Did you hear anything that I didn't hear? About? No, I didn't hear anything that was major coming from Epic Games, uh, any big announcements or anything like that, which I was a little surprised by. I feel like the Unreal like keynote at or whatever, not State of Unreal, but the big Unreal talk at Sigraph in Vancouver last year was pretty awesome. Uh, there yeah. was some really cool MetaHuman stuff. Um, so yeah, I didn't I didn't hear anything particularly noteworthy um, for this year, and I don't I don't even know if Tim Sweeney was there. I don't believe he was. No. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at like their list of talks and yeah, there really wasn't a whole lot here. Like, um, oh, there was an announcement that, um, AWS made, um, around a deadline integration. So I think they had a talk there. Okay. Um, deadline integration with movie render queue. Um, and then... Yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot here. I, my assumption is that they would save everything for their own conference, right? Like, of course. And I'm excited for that, by the way. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't think they had a whole lot to talk about. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's fine. Uh, sounds like the bell of the ball might have been NVIDIA. Or did they have the most exciting content? Uh, yeah, and and to be fair, it's probably a bit of a low bar. Um, okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I would say the most exciting content that I experienced was this quantum computing talk, and we'll get into it because mm. there was the there was general buzz about it, um, and and we can get more into it. I but there were a few talks about it, like one of the keynotes, like I mentioned, and there was this one on one talk that was packed. It was a huge room and it was packed full of people. Um, and so I think that was a big topic, but let's, let's talk about NVIDIA real quick. Yeah. Um, and actually there's a few things that are probably worth talking about here. Um, so Tuesday morning, NVIDIA, um, Jensen, NVIDIA CEO mm -hmm. gave a keynote in person. First um, time in five years. Yeah. It's been a while and we can get into this later. I got to meet Jensen, got to shake Ooh. his hand and show him a demo. <laughs> nice. I, I, I said real words, you know, there were, I didn't turn into a fanboy, you know, I could have, nice. I could have, I, I was, I was close, but I said real words and didn't look like a complete idiot. So, you know what? Mission success with Jensen. Anyway, you, Jacob. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, getting back to the, to the topic here. Um, so I, I had some great seats, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, I got lucky. So my company has a pretty strong relationship with NVIDIA and I was able to get into like an early access line. So I got cool. to keep going first. And I had this seat like front, slight, or kind of on the left. And as it turns out, Jensen stood like right in front of us. The <laughs> so we had great seats um, to watch this. Um, and it was, it was cool to kind of see him on stage and in person. Um, but essentially, the, most of the stuff he talked about was kind of uh, stuff that I, I was kind of expecting and I'm coming into this a little bias because I have been kind of briefed on a lot of the stuff that they were going to talk about ahead of time just given the, the stuff that uh, we do mm -hmm. um, but you know so he announced a few new GPU types so there's they've essentially come out with this L40S GPU there was already an L40 the L40S 
is kind of the unlocked version of L40. And I don't think we need to get into the naming arguments or anything like that. Um, but they, they released that GPU. They announced that they would be shipping a new version of the H100, which is this huge AI training GPU. And they were going to release as uh, H2 or GH200, um, which is like the same thing, but twice the amount of memory. Um, and for those who, you know, kind of aren't into this stuff, like the amount of GPU memory that you have on a GPU kind of is directly correlated in especially AI ML workloads to mm -hmm. the size of the model that you want to train or serve inference and inference being like how you take your model and actually, you know, run data through it so that you can get a result. Um, so it was a big deal. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think everyone was kind of more or less expecting that this is the kind of stuff that they would be talking about. But along with that, you know, Jensen was very straight, was more forward than I expected about um, the way he would address AI and how and its impact on the industries. Because you have to remember, mm. this is a crowd full of people in the VFX industry and games industry, all, all people who are probably have, to some extent, some fears about the way AI is going to impact, you know, their careers and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and Jensen was very clear about it where he said, look, the future is like the programming language is natural language. And like the way you'll be creating content is going to be heavily, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of uh, supplemented with, you know, generative AI. Um, and so he gave an example using Omniverse where like you would say, hey, like take this car and generate a landscape near a bridge and do this and that and like change this or, you know, kind of give an example of what the kind of visualization workflow would look like where you don't have to worry about designing entire environments and stuff like that. So like there was a lot of conversation around that. He also made a, a, a big point of... Um, you know, really going into OpenUSD. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a few conversations at SIGGRAPH around OpenUSD. So there was USD. And USD was um, Pixar's standard. It was technically, owned, the, the IP was technically owned by them. It was open licensed and like, it was a, you know, an open standard, but fundamentally it was Pixar's intellectual property mm -hmm. and then back at or really around gdc time actually uh, so in march um they open source and this happened like while gdc was happening pixar open sourced usd ah, so right. they released their you know intellectual property or or released the license for it um and it became open usd mm -hmm. all right and then about a week before SIGGRAPH, it they formed the Alliance for OpenUSD, which is composed of Epic Games, NVIDIA, um, uh, Alliance for USD. Uh, <laughs> Who else is in there? <laughs> not Epic Games. So, okay. <laughs> Pixar, Adobe, Autodesk, and NVIDIA, not Epic Games. Um, I thought Epic was in there, but I must, I must be mistaken. Um, and then the last one, which had everyone had everyone's eyebrows raised was Apple. Um, like, don't get me wrong, Apple pretty much like 
participates in all these discussions. Um, you know, they were very crucial to Vulcan and um, the Kronos group, which has a lot of projects that, hey, you're wearing one. Um, GLTF and everything else. Um, and I should say, by the way, I did get this at SIGGRAPH last year in Vancouver. <laughs> um, so don't get me wrong, Apple participates in a lot of this, but people were genuinely interested into why Apple would be a, a foundational member of this alliance. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I you know, I think on the surface you say, oh well, this clearly leans into what they're doing with their, you know, 3D platform with, you know, the Vision Pro and all that. Um, I think it's a little more complicated than that, most likely. I, I think they have a, a few interests surrounding it. Yeah. And of uh, course, they, they have a huge history with Pixar, of course, uh, both yeah. Apple and Pixar having a, a major Steve Jobs element. You know? Yeah, and, and obviously that relationship still exists, um, but everyone was interested. Uh, like out of, out of the conversations I had about the Alliance for OpenUSD, most people were just surprised that Apple was there. Cool. Um, but regardless, essentially, it's um, an alliance to fund the continued, you know, production or kind of improvements and, and development of USD and to form a, you know, kind of ecosystem to, to potentially fund projects, stuff like that, um, events, all that, mm -hmm. um, which I think is very interesting. Um, uh, overall, though, like to the extent that NVIDIA pushed USD, I, I, I was, I continued to be surprised. I mean, they, they made a major investment in it. Don't get me mm -hmm. wrong. Um, their Omniverse platform, which I actually think is quite cool. Um, like relies heavily on it and made a clear bet. Other folks are making this bet as well. Um, so it's the kind of thing that there's a lot of people who have a big stake in it. Um, but it's always surprising to, to kind of see how much it keeps getting brought up and how actually how much practically people are talking about it. Um, I find that pretty interesting. So that was a major part of the talk. Um, and then, you know, they had a whole host of additional kind of product solution kind of stuff they announced one of the big ones was a, a, something called AI Toolkit, which was their partnership with Hugging Face, which is one, right. of, the, one of the big AI model marketplaces. Um, so Hugging Face and NVIDIA teamed up to make this interface for interacting with generative AI models for creating and publishing them, stuff like that. Um, seems pretty cool, I'm not gonna lie. Seems like a pretty interesting thing. So if you're interested in just kind of getting into, um, you know, generative AI, maybe you're kind of looking to dip your toes in the water and you don't want to worry about um, as much, uh, you know, like uh, uh, as much infrastructure, it seems like a, a pretty nice option. I just Googled AI toolkit and I'm getting some different results. So I'm, I'm going to say maybe I, misremembered the name of this product release um is it dgx cloud no that's i think it's like it's x powered by dgx cloud mm. um simulation. yeah i mean the the newsroom headline from nvidia is nvidia and hugging face to connect millions of developers to generative ai supercomputing integration of nvidia dgx cloud in the hugging face platform to speed llm training and tuning simplifies custom modeling for nearly every industry 
but I don't see a like a platform title beyond that. Like they literally yeah. just say the Hugging Face platform. <laughs> huh. Okay. Well, maybe there was some language there that has changed. I, I'm not sure, but they released a, a cool UI. It's, it's worth. Um, I don't know if there is a video online of the keynote. I assume there is. Yeah, there is. Um, I would check that out. And also. Alex, your video is frozen. Just so oh no, know. thanks. <laughs> In <laughs> a great position too. Problem. I know. I'm I'm looking at all the uh, the other stuff. Come on, get out of here. <laughs> it's because it's always late at night when my phone's about to die, and my phone serves as my uh, video. There we are. Cool. Uh, let's dive into uh, quantum computing. If you think we're yeah. ready for that, Jacob. So first of all, let me tell you what I think when I hear quantum computing. Uh, so Alex Garland, uh, who made such films as like Sunshine and Ex Machina and 28 Days and Weeks and Months and Years Later, um, had a TV series starring Nick Offerman called Devs, which was about this like secret AI startup that was using quantum computing to uh, basically like go back in time and like simulate different kinds of outcomes for different things. And, you know, the impression they give of quantum computing is it can just do an insane, not only number of calculations, but do calculations in like a totally different realm from how computers nowadays do calculations. Yeah. And we've heard things like, you know, you can get around all sorts of securities in quantum computing because it's like a total side door to everything that is traditionally structured to like encrypt and keep keep certain people out of a thing. Um, that's kind of like the pop culture impression of quantum computing. Uh, tell us about the talk you saw and maybe uh, some more grounded fact-based information about quantum computing. Yeah, so I, I mean, fundamentally, some of the things you said are right in, in the sense that like, and we'll get into this, is, is that the kinds of problems that you can solve with quantum computing are just totally different mm -hmm. than classical computing. Um, so it's it's worth just putting that out the bat right like there's a lot obviously in this talk i wouldn't i'm not going to go through as part of this podcast um let me give you some resources though out the bat in case you are interested um in learning a little bit more and i'll, I'll remind of some of these resources but this the presentation was uh by a gentleman um oh i have it here where did his name go Andrew, uh, Glassner, Andrew who Glassner is a principal research scientist at Weta. Um, I think he does a lot of their AI ML work. Cool. Um, Weta Digital or Weta, Weta not owned by Unity? Well, it says Weta Digital plus Unity. So uh, okay, presumably Weta Tools. Yeah, um, yeah. That gives you any additional hints into what they might be doing. Um, and he, I want to give him a plug because he was incredible. Mm. He gave a full... 101 on quantum computing uh, to a very large audience. And he has a book coming out called Introduction to Quantum Computing. And if I've learned anything from that talk is that I would read his book because he's <laughs> very good at explaining things. And based on the note here I have from the presentation, he will have a book coming out in early 2024. So right cool. at the bat, if you're interested in anything we talk about for the next 20 minutes, check this guy out and check out his book. Um, okay, but let's talk a little bit about what he actually spoke about. So essentially the way he he kind of set this up was to say, the first thing you got to do is forget everything about how you structure computer programs. Mm -hmm. So in standard computing, the way everything works is that you have a series of instructions and each instruction um, follows, you know, what we call control flow in the sense that you have physical 
um, you know, uh, uh, pipelines inside of your CPU. Those are usually referred to as threads or cores. And obviously, this is a generalization, but you take essentially operations and you feed them through a pipeline and they're, you know, processed, you know, one at a time in a linear fashion or in parallel with multiple threads or cores. And all those operations are, you know, feed into some sort of atomic, you know, truth of, of the world state that you can monitor. And most computer programs struggle with parallelism because standard computing always requires that you have some ground truth and that there's always some, you know, desired state. Um, and fundamentally, like folks who are familiar with computer programming, you're probably used to things like for loops or things like if and statements and and all this kind of stuff that we're used to when we're programming. Um, and quantum computing, totally not like, <laughs> totally different, all right? Um, none of that exists. You can't use for loops. Like control flow, not a thing. <laughs> like from a, a physics perspective, like these machines, and I'm certainly not the expert on like uh, quantum computing hardware by any means. However, I will give my best high-level um, summary of it in, in that these are large physical machines that are actually applying like fundamental forces to particles, like like the lowest, uh, uh, like fo it, there are different types of particles you can use apparently. But let's say like a photon, you're taking like some like a, a, a subatomic particle you are applying forces to it and usually using things like, um, you know, like light or, you know, other radiation and stuff like that in order to change the state of that subatomic particle. And the hardware itself is incredible. The fact that like we have the ability to do any of this is, is insane. And the keynote from the IBM, um, I, I can't remember who it was. Um, IBM is like a, a VP of research, something like that. Um, was talking about how they've now developed a like 450 something qubit quantum computer and we could talk a little bit more about what that means but essentially there's huge physical advancements in this technology you might have heard a lot of conversations recently about this like potential superconducting material and what it could mean for humanity and if you read a few of those articles you'd probably see that one of the takeaways was like oh well quantum computing would overnight like be on your desktop was mm -hmm. obviously a bit of an absurd claim uh, but for what it's worth, like the other big problem with quantum computing, and again, we'll get into this, is that you have to deal with a lot of issues of noise um, around how how well you can control these systems, how well you can control anomalies that affect the system. Um, heat being the biggest one, like when you transfer heat through materials, they change and alter their form and also, you know, conductivity, all these other things change. Um, so they have to be super cooled to you know, using liquid nitrogen in order for the materials inside of, uh, of a quantum computer to be efficient enough and noiseless enough for you to do any sort of efficient calculation using quantum computers. And so like, if you look at these online, if you look at a photo of it, be these crazy looking tubes or like uh, machines usually suspended from like the ceiling that have like all these tubes coming out of it that are really just trying to super cool this thing down until it becomes a superconductor that we can then use for quantum computing. It's absolutely insane, right? Like the physical <laughs> side of this is incredible. Um, I'm sure I'm doing a terrible job explaining. <laughs> I mean, it um, sounds like sci-fi. It sounds like that yeah, shouldn't be possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's totally sci-fi. 
um, but it's it's really cool. So totally different from classical computing. But the fundamental idea is that instead of having those instructions that you take one by one and you can check the state at any time, it's kind of like a black box where you have a bunch of particles that are in any combination of states. So like a particle before you look at it, before you observe it, can is essentially a probability of potential outcomes. So like mm -hmm. the particle can be in this orientation or another, or like this is for a physicist out there, they're going to like cringe at me. Saying <laughs> this, uh, like a photon can be in this orientation or this orientation or this spin, that spin. Mm -hmm. And like, you don't know any of that. It's just, there's a possible, there's a probability of one orientation or another, or a probability of one spin or another. And ahead of time, you have ways of not observing that probability. There's ways of, observing that probability by taking repeated measurements and trying to figure out what and kind of trying to extrapolate the state that the particles are in ahead of time. You can, so you can't observe that probability. All you can do is observe it. And the second you observe it, there's no going back. All, the, all those different possibilities that might've existed before no longer exist. And so your observation is the only thing you can do. And so in essence, like, they're, the types of problems you solve are just totally different. So one of the examples that the speaker gave um, uh, is one of the famous ones around cryptography called Shor's algorithm. And essentially the, the way that uh, most cryptography works today, and this is going to be another simplification, um, <laughs> is that you take what are called, well, so like one of the famous ones, the ecliptic curve, or you take some sort of geometric object and you essentially create prime factors um, where, so there's a whole long list of prime numbers. You essentially take a, a random assortment of prime factors and use those to navigate your way around some crazy 3D space. And because they're prime factors, it's much more difficult to extrapolate back um, because to know all the you know factors, you would have to, it, it, look, way over my head. <laughs> okay. Sure. So just know that there's crazy problems involving prime factors um, and usually the way you would, you know, for example, crack a, you know, like a computer password um, is that you would, uh, you would have to kind of brute force it, force it. So you would take some password, you would feed it through some, one of these algorithms, you've probably heard of some of them like RSA or ECS. Um, and these are all encryption standards where you take, it's a one-way function where you take some content you pass it through it and it comes out in some way where you can't reverse that process. So standard like code crack or like uh, password cracking, you just take guesses at that password and see if what comes out on the other end is what you're expecting. Um, and if that's the case, you've gotten the password, right? Um, the way that quantum computing kind of navigates around this is that instead of doing, you know, one observation at a time, you can set some expectation um, for, kind of uh, of potential outcomes and there's additional black box on either side that i know nothing about yeah because it, it was presented as black box in the talk because it was probably too complicated there's a classical computing problem on either side for creating the expectations and analyzing the results and i know nothing about it <laughs> however fundamentally in the center what you can do is set up a problem where you're able to analyze um every possible combination of states for 
like these these you know um these different prime factors and those prime factors again when you multi you know multiply them together or you do some sort of pathfinding algorithm you get your result out, out the other end and that's that one-way function essentially you can simulate the state of all possible prime factors and you have a classical computing problem on either side that allows you to within very few tries determine a password so it, it really breaks most modern cryptography Crazy. um and that's pretty that's today right like we don't have ways of combating this in modern cryptography so that means like fundamentally you know and this is getting into like conspiracy theory jacob <laughs> the government or ibm has a technology to break every password on the planet right so like Amazing. keep that in mind yeah when you go to sleep you know um <laughs> uh but in reality like quantum cryptography is, is a major field there's lots of research out there i i found this talk pretty interesting i i'm planning on, on maybe looking into some more of it. it seems very interesting um but that's one of the famous problems but the the speaker also gave some interesting ones with graphics which i thought mm -hmm. were pretty cool so one of them was um ray tracing so in standard ray tracing with like let's say on a gpu what you're essentially doing is calculating uh collisions uh from rays with objects in your scene. And the way real-time ray tracing does it is that it takes the scene, it's able to divide up the 3D space into you know, sub, um, like sub volumes. Mm -hmm. And those volumes can then be parallelized and processed on your GPU using RT cores. That's the way NVIDIA real-time ray tracing works. Is that different from CUDA cores? Yeah, well, so yeah. an RT core is designed to accelerate this quote, quote BVH structure, like a oh, okay. binary partition, like volume, essentially. Um, it's it's just custom silicon that's designed to do that specific operation really gotcha. well. Mm -hmm. um, but CUDA cores, and like you'll see other ray tracing, like real time ray tracing, and like AMD, for example, it's not done on you know custom like dedicated cores. It can be done more generalized, just like mm -hmm. Nvidia developed these specialized cores to do this operation, uh, which is really just ray triangle. Um, intersection using this accelerated BVH structure. Gotcha. Um, so essentially, this quantum computing application of it would be you can take uh, so each qubit, which is like it's not like a classical bit, it represents <laughs> some range of states between zero and one. Again, you don't know that state ahead of time, you can only observe it. And there's all sorts, of, you should look, read this guy's book if you'd like to know more. I, I will be reading this guy's book. I mean, Q1 2024. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, each qubit represents some state, and it's uh, between zero and one. And if you do the math, like with all of the different probabilities that add up, like you could technically represent every state, this, or you can represent the state of every atom in the universe in a quantum computer that has like 400 qubits. So we're already there. Crazy. Um, and the idea is that like, because you can kind of set up these different you can kind of manipulate these probabilities a bit ahead of time and you have your observations, you're able to do some work with it. Um, but what you could do with ray tracing is you could take every ray or like every pixel on the screen and have each qubit represent every ray. And you could have another state that represents every object in your scene. And essentially when you apply this, you technically get every intersection but unfortunately the way like quantum computers work you can only get one intersection at a time hmm. and so it's still very slow 
Now, in theory, like, yes, a quantum computer is quote unquote calculating, and it's not that's the wrong word. It is, you know, kind of, it has a representation of it, but you're only able to observe one collision at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other, there are lots of other use cases. Um, I have a, let me bring up a few here that I thought were pretty interesting. Um, so there, I'm trying to remember the other one that was mentioned specifically. This goes way deeper than Oppenheimer's very cursory uh, exploration of of quantum physics. You have like one line of uh, Oppenheimer saying like, in quantum physics, light can exist both as a wave and a particle. And then they got to move on. (laughs) Yeah, I I can imagine that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I'm trying to think of the the other one. Um, Oh, pathfinding. Uh, Yeah, yeah. um, There are classic problems in games where you have to find, oh, what's, what's the fastest way between one point and another? While using quantum computing, you can, in one pass, calculate a valid path to from the start to the finish. Doesn't mean it's the fastest one. And you might repeat it a few times and get the same result. Like there's no guarantee that you're going to get the fastest one. In theory, it's still much faster because mm-hmm. regardless, you're not considering any path that is not reaching your destination. Mm-hmm. So most classical operations at handling this is that you essentially, and they're more advanced algorithms for this, of course, but you start from one point and you kind of branch off in every possible direction. And then in the end, you find your 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 end location and you, you're kind of t- keeping track of, of how far you're going in every possible direction to figure right. out. Right. Um, if anyone wants to to do more research on this, the, the, the classic algorithm is called A-star. <laughs> um, but the way it works in quantum computing is that you get a valid, like with every pass, like every calculation, you'll get a valid path. And if you just do enough of these at some point, the the probability says that you'll end up with most likely the fastest path, which is pretty interesting. Um, Keep in mind that it's not just like simple paths, like this can navigate an almost infinite scale path, which is pretty cool. Like there's no real limitations to it. Obviously with infinite scale, there's lots of paths. So you're still not guaranteed the fastest one uh, with with today's understanding of how to develop quantum algorithms. Uh, but there's stuff like that. Um, so my key takeaways, if, if you want nothing else from this, is A, the kinds of problems that quantum computers can solve are are just fundamentally different, but they're fascinating questions about like the simulation and reproduction of physical phenomena, like 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 with ray tracing, like light bouncing into a scene, right? Or uh, with like simulating things like paths or physics or not really physics, but like, imagine you had some state of the universe and you were able to say, oh, well, what happens if this state occurs? Like, what's next? Like, these are kinds of questions that, you know, maybe we'll have the ability to answer with quantum computers. Fundamentally, though, like, it doesn't do everything. And chances are, at least the way I read the the context, is that there is probably a, a future where, like, like a, a classical computing and quantum computing live together to solve problems, um, which I think is pretty fascinating. Um, so the idea that you might have some subset of problems that are best addressed with classical computers, and then we have ways of otherwise impossible tasks being solved on this new genre of of computing, which I find fascinating and very freaky. Um, yeah, very freaky. <laughs> uh, but... Overall, I think it's really cool. I think folks should 
should check it out. Um, and uh, like I mentioned, Andrew Glasner, he has a website, apparently, www.glasner.com. Check mm-hmm. it out. He has a book. Um, I will definitely be checking that out. Um, so for cool. sure. All right. So just to put a pin in the SIGGRAPH discussion. So out of the different announcements, quantum computing and NVIDIA stuff and AI and all this, um, or do you think there's anything important that our listeners who are like primarily focused over in Unreal can take away as like, ah, here's something that might fundamentally start to change my Unreal Engine workflow over the next year or two? Yeah. I, so I think that of the things I saw, if you are, for example, a professional who is working in virtual production or live production, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on with how um, like how Epic and Unreal Engine is going to support the environment um, with their partners. So like I spoke to folks at Disguise and there are a few other solutions that are similar that all have the like are all trying to bring um you know compute and infrastructure to the virtual production environment to support the kinds of things you do in unreal and i think there's a lot of cool stuff going on there um and i think we'll see a lot of progress there um uh in the next year or two um the other big thing is like usd adoption we're, like i mentioned we're going to continue to see that um you know epic has invested s- some effort into usd but i i really expect that that will continue in a big way um, if they are serious about the kind of media entertainment industry in general. Um, and then when it comes to real time, I mean, and, and really any subject like AI is going to play a big part of this. And we've already talked about this lots in, in, in the podcast, so we don't have to get too much into it. But there was a clear feeling across the board that people were looking to adapt to AI mm-hmm. um, and that there were big questions about what sort of things AI would um, would be bringing to this space in, a sh- in short order. Um, so those are the, my biggest takeaways. I, I would say that like, um, I really wish that I had some more time to go to talks, but just looking at the schedule, like those are the big things like AI motion capture. Um, Vicon was doing a, a markerless capture system. Um, Radical Live is, is another solution that does something Radical similar. AI, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, there's a bunch of these, but there's some really exciting stuff like that. I would you know, AI animation inside of, you know, tools like Unreal is only going to, con- we saw some of that at Unreal Fest. We're going to continue to see it. Sorry, not Unreal Fest, GDC. Um, so like, those are the big takeaways for me. Um, as we're kind of going into the 50th year of SIGGRAPH and really graphics, you know, consortiums in general, um, the big takeaways are are around these fundamental changes that, that people see coming. Um, and, and AI is playing a big part. Gotcha. All right. And uh, FYI, my phone just died. So no more video for me, but that's okay. Uh, any other thoughts about SIGGRAPH in general? Or should we move on to some uh, other announcement and shout out stuff? Um, I I would say in general, if if you are thinking about um, getting into like the, a, a more technical um, side of either graphics, whether that's, you know, real time, something like Unreal or uh, something like VFX, uh, I definitely recommend that you cough up the 15 bucks to <laughs> get ACM SIGGRAPH, like access to the papers and do Google searches for quick terms or maybe consider, you know, uh, volunteering to contribute to a paper or 
Uh, there's lots of groups out there. If you're interested in getting more involved, um, I, I think it's a great way for you to, uh, um, you know, get access to the community of very smart and passionate people. Um, and I think a lot of times, um, particularly in computer graphics, it's today kind of just considered this like very, very difficult to access industry because there's a lot of industry knowledge and background that, um, you know, it gets propagated. Uh, and I think it's a SIGGRAPH is a great opportunity to just meet interesting people. Everyone's very genuine there and, and you know, very, um, again, a lot of very technical folks um, who I think you can learn a lot from. So I definitely recommend if you're interested in SIGGRAPH or you're interested in this industry, check it out, you know, read some papers. I, I think it's a great way to get involved. Yeah. And to be clear, the papers aren't all super dry and a lot of them have pictures and GIFs and videos. So, you know, some of them are actually very engaging to go through. Yeah. Some of them even have downloads or like GitHub pages. So, you know, it's it's definitely worth checking out. Cool. OK. Um, OK, for me to bounce into some shout outs. Do it. All right. So first, um, I'm, I've never shown a thing from Reddit before. Uh, in the podcast, but I stumbled on this and I was kind of interested in it. What version of Unreal are you currently using? And, you know, no surprise to see 5.2 being the one that is most frequent, but I, I was struck by the original poster, OP, saying that they're still in 4.27 uh, because they're finding UE5 doesn't have the stability they need, particularly for VR and physics that they need. And then there's a lot of kind of echoing of that sentiment down here. And some of the discussion, I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on this, Jacob, was people kind of saying like, Unreal Engine is releasing amazing features so quickly that they aren't necessarily finding the time or resources to stabilize those features before they move on to the next features. And so there are a lot of people who are like, I wish Epic would kind of slow down and make sure that, you know, things are, are basically crashing less or more usable. And I can say I can relate to this a little bit as someone who is trying to stay on the bleeding edge of Unreal. We have so many things right now that are almost working the way we want them to, but yeah. it's just not quite stable enough. We're still getting, you know, one crash too many to feel like we can show it to a client or put it into production. So, you know, as of now, uh, we still have more projects that we are keeping in 4.27 than up in five uh, yeah. entirely for safety. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. I, I think it's a double-edged sword because I think if you took 5.2 or 5.3 and disabled those new features, which you can do yeah, <laughs> in pretty much every case, if you disabled those new features, it would be just as stable as 4.27. I disagree guess. with that. I disagree with that. Things like light baking, some of the stuff that Unreal Engine 5 is trying to move away from, uh, ray tracing, you know, because we're now trying to do more things in Lumen, those things over in Unreal Engine 5 do not work as well as they did in 4.27. Well, like <laughs> Lumen didn't exist, right? So I, that's not a fair one, but... Uh, right, right, right. But I, I mean, like, if you go in, if you take a 4.27 project and you just upgrade it to 5 and you try to keep it exactly the same and use, like, yeah, like, what we do a lot is ray traced reflections and light baking, like that does not work as well in any version of Unreal Engine 5 compared to 4.27. Okay. Well, I, <laughs> I, I obviously trust your experience there, but I, I think that the it's a double-edged sword because like, why would you go to 5.2 if you're going to disable all the 5.2 features, right? Like, sure. <laughs> that's, that's my bigger point here is like, they're shipping a lot of new features. I think they're really cool. Um, a lot of them are explicitly said not ready for production and they have a lot of stuff that's not ready for production and i agree 
um, that there's probably a lot that they could do to improve that. Um, if I were in Epic's shoes, I'd imagine that like, look, they just made a bunch of acquisitions. You know, we're talking, um, you know, ArtStation and um, uh, we're talking Twin Motion, Bandcamp, uh, MetaHuman, <laughs> Sketchpad, Sketchpad. You know, like you just made a ton of acquisitions, so you have a lot of new people touching the platform. Um, you also they hired a few thousand people. Yeah, uh, the Unreal Engine team used to be like twenty people. <laughs> you know, One like time. that was the engine team. It was not big. Now it's enormous. And look, Fortnite's pretty stable because they dedicate a lot of resources to it. Sure. And I'm, I get the feeling if you're, you know, one of their top clients, I'm sure you get the support you need to to make sure it's stable. Uh, but fundamentally, yeah, I, I think that they're trying to push features to gain a community following to get people interested in their platform. Like they had a big issue a few years ago in which the, there were just not enough people who knew anything about Unreal. Right? Sure, like, yeah. People who were getting educated on it, people who like had built a single project in Unreal. And so like all the features that they're pushing, I, I think a lot of that is, is realistically to just get people on the platform and interested. Yeah, get um, them excited. Yeah, with the understanding that like, you know, a lot of this technology is still developing like Lumen and Nanite. Yeah. Probably could have waited a year or two. Um, if you really wanted to make it a production, you know, full parody feature. Right. Um, but fundamentally, like they saw the opportunity to release it to the public in, in a way where it garnered a lot of attention, got a lot of people excited about the future. Um, they've done a lot of work and, building the platform and if anything like as an unreal engine user i would be very excited for where things are headed um even if it's like we're facing a few rough patches just because i i, I see it as a good thing i can see how people could see it as a bad thing but yeah I, I... totally reasonable okay back to uh some nice shout outs uh, i've been following dylan brown more who has a, a very cool marketplace asset uh, what's it actually called? Let's pull it up real fast. Um, for anyone who's only listening, uh, Dylan Brown on Twitter or X is, <laughs> unfortunately, I noticed they have an X in their actual handle now. I think that predates the the change from Twitter to X, but it's D-Y-L-S-E-R-X. And uh, the marketplace asset is called Ocean System for Rendered Cinematics. And uh, I've seen some of the development on here, and it is just absolutely gorgeous, like That's fluid great. dynamics running in Unreal. Um, it does say it's for cinematic, so I'd love to try it out and test it in real time. But the reflections and the wave movement and the level of control is is really quite impressive. Um, I was telling Jacob before the show that like I remember using really old school fluid dynamic systems where if I could get it to simulate like one frame every few seconds, I was thrilled. And the fact that this could be even near real time is uh, is super exciting. Yeah, wow, that. I, I definitely recommend you hit the link in the in the show notes for this one because it is it's very cool. Um, yeah, a lot of cool stuff there. And oh, wow. Dil Dylan's also just great about updating everything uh, that he's working on inside uh, Twitter. So you know, it's always nice to see a developer who doesn't just release something and it's done. They like continue to test it and update it and let people know what they're working on. So those are my favorite kinds of developers. 
Um, next thing I want to draw attention to. So this one, I have no idea what Polygon Flow actually is. Their description is uh, create next generation tools to give you access to the best artistic workflow straight within Unreal Engine. What caught my eye in this video in particular um, was actually just the fact that they made a toolbar. And this is something that I'd love to see more of in Unreal Engine plugins. Like, don't be afraid to actually create like an actual toolbar to use because UE5 kind of moved away from this. I think you're like not even allowed to, you know, get icons in the the top ribbon or anything like that now. Um, but to be able to have something like this where you are being very specific to the things that this tool can do and to bring up a toolbar like this is really nice. And I like their description as well, where they say, um, Ba, 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 ba. We're giving you a state-of-the-art workflow that removes the bloat of Unreal Engine 5 and allows you to create art that you can be proud of. So what I like about that phrasing is Unreal Engine still intimidates a lot of people. And, and as Jacob just said, like there's so many features and there's so many exciting things. And chances are uh, the thing that draws someone to Unreal is like maybe at most 1% of all the capabilities of the engine. So they might get intimidated seeing a bunch of things about control rig if they're just in there to make uh, a really beautiful, you know, uh, uh, cinematic of with you know beautiful light and fog and something like that. So anytime someone's like, we want to simplify Unreal Engine and make like the tools so straightforward to use, especially from an artistic perspective, uh, I think that's incredibly admirable. So shout out to uh, Polygon Flow at Polygon Flow and anyone else who is trying to do that kind of stuff with Unreal. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I think we'll see a lot more of these kinds of tool sets, um, just in terms of. Like the 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 engine it has a lot of yeah like you said so many features, there's gonna be more curated UI um, for specific use case. There just has to be um, because a lot of it has gotten away from that. Um, like you said, the the toolbar on the left, um, the shelf, you know, with yeah. all the different modes, like that used to be the different things you did in Unreal, right? Like, I think one of the reasons they hit it is because fundamentally it no longer really covered the different use cases and so like it was kind of a, an irrelevant grouping even inside the viewport mm -hmm. um but i i mean this looks really cool i'd love to see more stuff like this yeah i'm gonna give them a follow live i'm following them now um then uh I, I don't want to say a quick shout out to me, but this is more just like an announcement that <laughs> quick shout uh, out <laughs> we we are starting to release a, a lot of our uh tools and uh, the stuff that that we've jumped through a lot of hoops to make work uh, on GitHub. So if you just go to github.com slash Agile Lens, we're starting to open source a lot of our projects. We really worked hard to get passed through to work both in desktop VR and uh, mobile VR. So that's a nice little sample anyone can download. Um, I've got my MetaHuman Studio set up, which lets you use a MetaQuest Pro to control a MetaHuman. Uh, we're starting to build our own nodes. And uh, that does, like the one we have here, for example, allows you to set the quality of your scene pretty easily. Uh, Marshall on my team is doing a lot more with C++, so that's been cool. And then we also just released a GitHub for uh, Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser, which we just want to gather as many people as we can. I think we mentioned this a little bit in our previous two-parter that you know we want there to be a big community effort of 3D modeling and coding and basically building this archive of the project inside Unreal. So anyone who wants to help out with that is welcome to join that GitHub. Um, every, all of that can be found at github.com slash Agile Lens. Uh, we're also going to release this week uh, our Rage Room experience, which you can see here in the, the image. So destruction, fire, water, 
uh, all that kind of stuff will be uh, easily available now. This is based on a project that my team did way back in like Unreal Engine 4.17 and is upgraded now to use all the chaos physics stuff. And it's really fun to just mess around and break things. So look forward to that. <laughs> um, over this, this caught my eye because this is an Apple Vision Pro concept. This is done by Permanent Sunset at Sunset Permanent. And it's a beautiful concept uh, for Apple Vision Pro, but it's made in Unreal Engine. And I kind of love how a lot of the, the pieces to it like absolutely looks like something that you uh, could see as like menus in the style of what Apple Vision Pro was already showing. It's just a question of if we'd be capable of rendering it. And then, of course, a lot of the responses to this kind of stuff is like, well, why are you doing this in Unreal? You're not going to be able to release it for um, Apple Vision Pro. And so on that note, uh, a few people have commented on this. And so I figure it's worth mentioning on the podcast that in the Unreal Engine GitHub now, if you go to the main branch and you go to Engine, Platforms, Vision OS, very, very early support for Unreal Engine running as a Swift UI app. So everyone is welcome to take a look at what is in here and make of it what you will. But it does seem like there is uh, some support for Apple Vision uh, Pro with uh, Vision OS starting to be figured out. So, you know, everyone need not flock immediately to Unity if they care about the Apple Vision Pro. Uh, tentatively, it looks like there could be a way to do that inside Unreal. Hooray. Yep. <laughs> that seems pretty compelling. Yeah. And those are my shout outs for the week. Cool. Um, I did not come prepared. No, you already spoke a bunch. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, I spoke a bunch and I mentioned a bunch of people. Um, but uh, I, uh, I had a long week. I'm excited to be back home for a bit. Where, where are you heading next, Alex? Do you have anything coming up? I think the next thing will be uh, Unreal Fest in, in October. And um, I'm still debating whether or not I'm going to do Autodesk University. I'm supposed to give a talk there. And I loved Autodesk University back in 2017. I did it in Vegas. 2018, I did it in London. Um, but I don't know, man, like with kids and everything and cool projects happening, like I kind of want to focus more of my time on on family and actual work rather than just talking about it. But We'll see. I might. I might change my mind. If someone wants to convince me to go to Vegas, I'll go to Vegas. Oh, geez. Yeah, I forgot it's Vegas. That's like a whole different thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But well, yeah. What about you? Are you headed anywhere soon? Uh, I might have a few unrelated uh, uh, conferences, but yeah, Unreal Fest. I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, it's gonna um, be great. And cool. Then, and there's also Unity has a conference in the Netherlands. Who knows? That's right. Maybe I'll make it there. We'll see. That'd be really fun. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I would absolutely welcome our unofficial Unreal Engine podcast doing a Unity focused episode because of some exciting conference they did. And yeah. let's be clear, like we're rooting for Unity. Like we would love for Unity to do everything that Unreal is trying to do in, in more amazing ways. Uh, competition is great. You know, the, the better Unity does something, the more uh, everyone at Epic Games is going to be challenged to do their version better. So like go Unity <laughs> if we've never said that before. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think we said that before, but you know, unless Epic wants to sponsor the podcast, I think we can get away. <laughs> we can do whatever we want. I mean, it would be really funny if, like, fast forward three years or, or three seasons from now, and uh, we still call it the unofficial Unreal Engine podcast, and it's like entirely devoted to Blender or Unity or something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's going to be so full circle. Yeah, yeah, cool. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. well, 
I think we're just about wrapped up here, Alex, would you say? Yeah, uh, thanks as always to our producer, Alan, who uh, makes us sound and look as good as we can running on our uh, novice tools. Uh, and also apologies to Alan, because I realized that Alan had made the suggestion that for our first season, we try to do 20 episodes. And uh, this is technically the 20th episode. So I think Alan would have preferred that we call this the final episode, but I already announced this is the first episode of the new season. So I guess we're going to stick with that. No worries. Yeah, 19 yeah. episodes in that first season. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We'll, <laughs> we'll do 20, ne 20 next season. There we go. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Um, you know, like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. Um, welcome to V0.2. Woo! Hooray! <laughs> Cheers, everyone. Bye-bye.